Please turn with me in the Scriptures to Acts chapter 2, continuing our series of sermons on these two chapters. We've come as far as chapter 2, verse 22, uh, page 1158 in the Pew Bible, 1158. So Peter has begun his sermon We won't uh, read that again, but he began it by quoting from the prophecies of Joel to point out that what was happening there on Pentecost Day was the outpouring of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as Joel prophesied. And then he continues his sermon, verse 22, "'Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs,' that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, and here he quotes from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is a quote from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That'll be as far as we go today. Next week, the Lord willing, the response of His listeners. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 110, from which Peter just quoted, we'll sing the stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you had been there on Pentecost Day in Jerusalem, just imagine that for a moment, if if you had been in the crowds seeing and hearing these 120 believers speaking in tongues, including in your own native language. Imagine if you were one of those 
Jews who had grown up in some other land and had come to live in Jerusalem. You'd heard them speak in your native tongue. You, you saw these tongues of fire appearing over their heads. You maybe heard the sound of wind. If you were one of the people that were puzzled by all this and were asking, like many people were, verse 12, what does all this mean? What sort of explanation would you expect to follow? You've, you're in the process of witnessing this incredible event, this arrival of a presence that's clearly from out of this world. You're standing in amazement. You, you, you've never seen or heard something like this before. And then a man stands up and offers an explanation. What do you suppose he's going to talk about? You would likely expect him to tell you about the meaning of those languages you're hearing, all those different tongues. You'd expect him to unpack the symbolism of the fire and the wind. And knowing, as we do today, that this event was in fact the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if we knew that while standing in the crowd, we'd be looking for, for Peter to tell us about the Spirit's purpose in coming to explain about the marvel of the Holy Spirit's presence now in the bodies of believers. We would expect Peter to unpack the, the great power of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit can do and, and will do in the hearts and lives of God's people. I mean, isn't that the great thing about Pentecost? The Spirit comes into the lives and hearts of God's people. Well, yes, all of those things are true. But if you look at Peter's explanation, his sermon, Peter does not say a word about the task or the purpose of the Spirit or even explain in any kind of detail the, the wonder of the signs or of the Spirit's presence. We learn about the Spirit's presence and what He does in the hearts of believers in bits and pieces throughout the other parts of the New Testament, also including Peter's later writings. But Peter's concern on Pentecost Day is not to talk about the Holy Spirit, remarkably. He wants to talk about Jesus Christ. Just like elsewhere in Paul's writings or John's writings or, or even Peter's later letters, the Holy Spirit is certainly mentioned. The event is explained as His being poured out. That's what Peter does. He, he explains that. But the focus of the sermon is actually on Jesus Peter's Pentecost sermon has 514 words in our English Bibles, our ESVs, and of those 514 words, the Holy Spirit is mentioned three times. By comparison, the name of Jesus is mentioned four times. The name or title Lord, referring to Jesus, is mentioned three additional times, and the title Christ is mentioned two times. That's a total of nine references to Jesus and three to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus is the center of God's redeeming purposes, and the Holy Spirit's task is not to take center stage, but to shine all the light and all the glory on Christ, on the Son of God. This is the pattern all throughout the Scriptures. The Spirit never attracts attention or honor to Himself. He's always busy directing honor to the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. 
Pentecost is not the Spirit's moment to shine. Rather, it's the Spirit's moment to turn the spotlight fully on Jesus so all can see Him for what He really is, both Lord and Christ, as Peter says in his sermon. With that in mind, I bring to you this word of the Lord. Be amazed at God's plan to make Jesus both Lord and Christ. Be amazed at God's plan to make Jesus both Lord and Christ. We'll see two things, Jesus' triumph over death and the fact that Jesus reigns even now on David's throne. Well, the first words of our text, verse 22, are the words, men of Israel. As I mentioned, Peter is in the middle of his sermon. And it's a reminder to us that in this sermon, he is speaking, first of all, to Jews. There's not a Gentile in sight. That's how he started his sermon, verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you. It's also how Peter ends his sermon, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know this. So, the Holy Spirit who's, who's filling Peter is addressing what's left of the original Israelite nation, those 12 tribes descended from Father Jacob, for the Spirit's purpose is to save a remnant of the Israelites and renew Israel under the kingship of their true Messiah, Jesus. In fact, the main point of Peter's Pentecost sermon is to declare to Israel that their Messiah has in fact arrived, that their Messiah has in fact done all of His saving work right under their noses, and all the time they thought He was their enemy. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know therefore that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, the one whom you crucified. You talk about a hard-hitting sermon. The one you hated, the one you handed over to the Romans and had him nailed to a cross, he is actually your Savior. Now, we hope to look next week at their reaction, but we want to unpack what Peter is saying in this sermon, and there's a lot in it. Let's draw out the main points. First, Peter stresses that what happened to Jesus all through those horrific events, it was all part and parcel of God's plan. Peter says, God has made that's verse 36, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Maybe a better way to say that, God has declared Jesus both Lord and Christ. And if we go from verse 36 and just walk backwards through the sermon, we find that God is in the driver's seat uh, unfolding His plan over and again. Go back to verse 33, God exalted Jesus at His right hand. Verse 32, God raised up Jesus from the dead. Verse 30, God had sworn to David to put one of his sons on the throne forever. And then verses 25 to 28, the whole quotation from Psalm 16 expresses how the Lord God is at David's right hand and he will not abandon his holy one. 
who's the Messiah. We'll not abandon the Messiah, but we'll make Him full of gladness in His presence. Verse 24, God raised Jesus up from the, from the dead. So, the historical facts are, are, have been clear to, to everybody up until this point. The Jews handed Jesus over to the Romans. The Romans crucified Jesus, but that was no random act. It was no accident. It wasn't just a miscarriage of justice. No, Peter is saying this flows out of a long, determined plan of our sovereign God. That's how Peter begins this section, verse 23, that's his point. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, as Peter preaches the gospel, explaining the good news of Jesus Christ to Israel... He highlights that all that Jesus went through, His suffering and His death, as well as His resurrection and His ascension, all of that is part of God's ancient plan for Israel. In fact, God's plan goes back further than Israel. For God revealed this plan to save the world and to save the human race, or at least a portion of the human race. He revealed that to Father Abraham. And before that, he revealed it to Father Noah. And before that, he revealed it to Father Adam. I want us to see this afternoon, brothers and sisters, the awe-inspiring power and plan of our God. This plan involving the death of His only begotten Son, it was made, think about this, it was made when? in eternity, before there even was an earth, before there even was a human race. Peter writes about that in his first letter. Let me quote, He, that's Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as God the Father chose us in Christ, here it comes, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Isn't that amazing? Before the foundation of the world. All that has transpired from the creation of Adam and Eve on toward Noah, to Abraham, to Israel, to David, to Jesus of Nazareth, is the outworking of God's one incredible plan with each of those figures in their time frame being like another chapter in God's one story of salvation. It's one plan, one story. I'm stressing this a little bit this afternoon, beloved, to show that this ministry of the Lord Jesus is not a brand new start in God's saving work. It is not the case that God tried something with Israel 
tried to redeem the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Israel kept refusing to cooperate. So now God is going to switch gears and try something new, something completely disconnected from the past. That part with Israel didn't work. Now we're on to something brand spanking new. There are folks who look at things this way. The old covenant, starting with Abraham and continuing on with Israel, they think that was one way of of doing things which didn't pan out, and so God sends Jesus. Jesus comes along and introduces the new covenant and brings about a completely new way of doing things. Some Christians look at the Scriptures as if there's a solid line between the New Testament and the Old Testament, as if there's a kind of a barrier there. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was with, made with Israel and it was under the law of Moses. The New Covenant, that's with the church under Jesus. And there's like two separate, distinct eras. Israel, they think, is the biological offspring of Jacob, but the church, that's something different. It's the spiritual offspring of God, people brought to faith in Jesus by the Spirit. And people sometimes say it this way, the church was born at Pentecost. You ever heard that? The birthday of the church was Pentecost Day. This is new, some say. But is that what the Bible actually teaches? When we look carefully at Acts 2 and this explanation of what's going on in Peter's sermon, what do we see? Well, we see in the first place a sermon preached by a Jew to a crowd of Jews. He's an Israelite preaching to Israel. There's no Gentiles here. And who is the sermon all about? It's about Jesus, an Israelite, descended from David of the tribe of Judah. And what's the effect of this sermon on Pentecost Day? 3,000 Israelites are brought to faith. If this is the birth of something new and something disconnected from Israel, it's very, very strange that it should start with 12 Israelites preaching and leading the, the effort and 3,000 Israelites being converted, isn't it? That, that's very strange. In fact, it doesn't add up. The reality is, brothers and sisters, Peter is, is not explaining to us that there's something new going on here. He's explaining that there is a renewal going on here. This is God's ancient church, Israel, being renewed. This is the beginning of Israel's renewal in the new covenant, a remnant being saved to which later will be added many Gentiles. That's what Paul specifically mentions in his sermon, Acts 13. A a number of the Jews reject Christ, and then Paul makes it a point to go off to the Gentiles. But the first renewal effort is among the Jews, the Israelites. So the point is this Pentecost is a continuation of God's single story of salvation that He has been unfolding since creation. It's just a furtherance of God's one eternal plan of redemption. 
It's the fulfillment of God's promises made to his one church under the old covenant. This is, this is the church getting renewed, revived. And more proof that this is a continuation of the church, it's all part of the one story, is what Peter does to go about proving his case. He's got this audience of Israelites in front of him. He wants to explain to them and prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. What does he do? He quotes from the Bible. Well, you say, nothing strange about that. We quote from the Bible all the time to make our points true. But Peter quotes from the Old Covenant Scriptures. First Joel, then two Psalms. Do we realize sufficiently, brothers and sisters, that the Bible for Peter, as it was for Paul and all the other apostles, the Bible for them was our Old Testament. They didn't have anything else. They had the 39 books. That's what they call the Scriptures. And time and again, they explain the work of Jesus from out of the Old Covenant Scriptures. We read an example of Paul doing that in Acts 13. He even uses the same psalm, Psalm 16, that Peter does. In fact, you might know that the book of Psalms is one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament, many times directly about Christ. In fact, I read somewhere that in the New Testament, the Old, the Old Testament is quoted more than 880 times. And then there's allusions to the Old Testament many more times. In other words, brothers and sisters, to say it this way, when the apostles launched into their sermons, when they preached the gospel, to the Jews in their synagogues, and even later to the Gentiles in in the marketplace, they preached Jesus from the Scriptures, the Old Covenant Scriptures, because the Scriptures reveal Christ. To be sure, the apostles added their eyewitness testimony. They also added additional revelation about Christ because they too were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the basis, what they worked out of, were those scriptures of the Old Testament. The Psalms, like the prophecies of Joel and Isaiah, like the books of Moses, they're all God's Word inspired by the same spirit of Pentecost that we're talking about, and they all unfold for us the plan of salvation in Jesus. So after quoting Joel to identify the phenomena of Pentecost as the long-promised outpouring of the Spirit, Peter then goes on to explain how it was possible for the Spirit to be poured out now. Why now? Why at this point? He's going to build up to a conclusion that it's because the Messiah now sits on David's throne, but he gets to that conclusion in two steps. The first thing he does is to identify Jesus as the Messiah who has been raised from the dead. That's step one. And the second is to show that this resurrected Jesus has been raised to the throne room in heaven. That's step two. And for that first step, resurrection, he 
quotes, Peter quotes Psalm 16. That's verses 25 to 28. You might want to look there with me for a moment, verses 25 to 28. And Peter's reasoning is quite simple, actually. He says, look, David in this psalm says that God will not abandon him to Hades, that's to death. God will not allow His Holy One to see corruption. But Peter says, look, you know, and he's talking to the Israelites in Jerusalem, you know that David's body lies in its tomb over there. At that time, David's tomb was well known. We don't know where it is today. It seems to have been destroyed somewhere along the way. But in that time frame, everybody knew. David's body was in that tomb. It had been in that tomb for hundreds of years, which meant that all that was left was dust. It had decayed. But, Peter, but David had written in Psalm 16 that God would not abandon the Holy One to corruption, to decay. So, Peter says, David must have been speaking about someone else. Who is that someone else? He drives it home in verse 30, Peter does, being therefore a prophet, that's David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. We sang that from Psalm 132. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did Christ have His flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, that'd be the twelve, are all witnesses. We learn a few important things from those verses. David was a prophet. Maybe we don't think of David as a prophet, but he was, says right here. David was a prophet. That means David's writings, the Psalms, are prophecies. Do we think of the Psalms as prophetic? Mostly the Psalms are prophecies by way of being types. What do I mean by that? Well, David was a type of Christ. And his experiences, what the Christ would experience. So, David very often wrote about what he experienced, what he felt, what was going on in the struggles of his heart, what was going on in his life. And because he had been anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, God used David to paint a picture of what the great future Messiah would experience as well. So David's life is like a canvas laid out by God and painted by God to show us Christ. And it also happens this way, that Christ came in the course of time and He lived out the Psalms. He lived out much more than the Psalms, also the prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and so many other places. But also in the Psalms, He experienced the sufferings that David wrote about. He experienced the humiliation that David wrote about. He also experienced the glory that David wrote about. David in his Psalms anticipated Christ's sufferings and glory. Then Jesus came and actually underwent the fullness of the suffering and entered into the fullness of glory. And guess what? We Christians, okay, we're not outside of this. We're in it too. We, after the fact, we share in Christ's sufferings and in His glory. 
Peter writes about that in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 13. Just as we share in Christ's suffering, so we will share in his glory. This is one of the big reasons why the Psalms resonate in all our hearts, don't they? They are personal and they are powerful. They are the more personal and the more powerful when you see that these are Jesus songs. The Spirit wrote them to give us a picture of what Jesus experienced and what we experience because we are united to Jesus. Now Peter's point to his Jewish audience is clear and undeniable. David in Psalm 16 had to be speaking about the Messiah to come who would rise from the dead. And then he adds that the 12 of us apostles, we are witnesses. Each of us will swear in a court of law that we have seen Jesus of Nazareth alive after he was crucified. We've touched him. We've walked with him. We've eaten with him and broken bread with him. And then he appeals to what the crowds already know. You know that this Jesus is a servant of God. That's how he starts in verse 22. He was attested to all of you Israelites, you Jews, by signs and wonders that he did among you. You saw him heal the sick and the lame. You saw him cast out demons. You even saw him raise the dead. You know he's from God. Nobody but a servant of God could do those things. This Jesus is the Christ that David is talking about. This Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. He is the Messiah who's come up to life, whom God brought to life. God did not allow Jesus' body to decay and turn to dust. In fact, Peter says it even more strongly, verse 24, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Oh, brothers and sisters, you should hang on to that. Underline it if you've got your own Bible there with you. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why? Because Jesus' death was a perfect sacrifice to cover all the sins of his people. And since he himself had no sin, death had no claim on him. He gave up his life to pay for us. He didn't have to pay for himself. Therefore, death had to spit him back to life, just like Jonah was spit back to life on the land by that whale. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. And do you know what the consequence of that is for you and for me? This is the consequence. It's not possible for you or me or any of God's people to be held by death because we belong to Christ. We're united to Him. We do not need to be afraid of death. It's, it is the last enemy. And I'm not trying to belittle it. But, brothers and sisters, the fear that we would otherwise have approaching death without Jesus, that fear is gone because we have a certain hope that we will be raised to life again. Your future is through death into resurrection to everlasting life. So take a moment, beloved, and be amazed at God's plan here. And be comforted in Jesus' salvation. Be thankful and be encouraged to keep loving Jesus, to keep serving Jesus, who is both Christ and Lord, reigning even now on David's throne. 
At the climax of his sermon, verse 36, Peter describes Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Now, we're familiar with those terms, as the Jews to whom Peter was preaching would have been familiar too. These are loaded terms, Lord, Christ. We, we use them fairly frequently, so we might have to recapture some of the, the weight of the terms. But the, that word Christ, that title Christ, that is Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah equals Christ. And the English translation is very simply anointed one. So all through the Old Covenant period, God was promising a single individual to be the Savior, right? He started in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Then He said to Abraham in Genesis 12, one of your offspring will bring blessing to all the families of the nations. And then in Psalm 2, for example, through David, one of your offspring will rule the nations. So there's this single individual that gets pictured throughout the Old Testament who's going to be the Savior. Now, as the Old Testament moves along, we get more detail about this individual, and one of the details is that he's going to be given the title Anointed One, Christ, Messiah. God had commanded Israel to anoint certain men to be kings, who would rule the people on God's behalf. He also commanded uh, certain men to be anointed as prophets to speak God's Word to His people. And He commanded that others from the tribe of Levi be anointed as priests who would minister God's grace to God's people. So, every anointed person in the Old Testament, they, they could be rightly described as a Messiah with a small m or Christ with a small c. So, if you were a Jew or an Israelite living in the Old Testament, you would have actually been familiar with many Christs, many Messiahs. But as Scripture unfolds in the Old Covenant period, the picture is given that there would be one person coming who would be the Messiah the Christ, the anointed one, who would have all of these offices rolled into one. And that's what Jesus is, the great high priest. He's also the great prophet, and He's the great king. Now, each of those offices is worthy of a sermon in itself, but this afternoon, just want to concentrate for a moment on that office of king, for that's also what Peter is driving at when he singles out the title, Lord. Lord with just one capital L. This Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now, that, that name Lord comes from the Hebrew Adonai, a Greek kurios, and it just means master, ruler. And again, in the Old Testament, the word Lord with, with a capital L, just one capital L, was used frequently of God. God is Lord. He's Lord of His people. He's ruler of His people. He's master. So when Peter says that Jesus has been declared to be Lord and Christ, he's inferring that the Messiah is more than a man. He's also God. 
there's something elevated about this Messiah. He's not like the ordinary Messiahs that they had known all their lives, the, the, the prophets and the priests and the kings. No, no, this is a special Messiah. Jesus had earlier told His apostles, just before His ascension, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Him. And so Peter highlights the reality that this ascended Jesus is not only the Christ, He is that, but He's also Lord. In other words, He's ruler supreme. Just as we sang this morning after the service, ruler supreme. That's Jesus, the Christ. Peter's point is the only explanation for the phenomena that you're witnessing, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the, the tongues of fire and the languages and everything that comes with it, the only explanation is that the Messiah is now on the throne as Lord and King ruling from heaven. Only Messiah could bring about what you are witnessing in the outpouring of the Spirit. And to prove this, Peter goes again to the Old Covenant Scriptures, Psalm 110. And you find that in verse 34. This psalm, and particularly this verse of this psalm, Psalm 110, is the most frequently quoted psalm and the most frequently quoted verse in the New Testament. You can find this particular verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted in the New Testament eight separate times. That gives you some idea of how important it was and still is. It's important because David in Psalm 110, he reveals something about this figure that was coming, this, this messianic figure. Peter quotes at verse 34, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, now we've got to clear up a little bit of confusion there. If you go back to the original, you would see that the first Lord is four capital letters. And you know from previous sermons that that means Yahweh, right? Four capital letters, Lord, Yahweh. But then the second Lord is just one capital L. That is the Hebrew Adonai or Master. So just to clarify, he is saying, Yahweh said to my Master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter's point is also clear. David can't be talking about himself because David is saying, Yahweh said to my master. Well, who's David's master? He's king. He's king of Israel. Who's David's master? If it's not Yahweh, because Yahweh's mentioned separately, it's got to be the Messiah. It's got to be the one who was even promised as an offspring to David, the great king who would come and rule on David's throne. And Peter stresses, we are witnesses. This is exactly what has happened. Jesus fits the bill. He is this master. He is this Messiah. We, we saw Him rise from the dead. We saw Him ascend into heaven. Jesus is Lord. That became a, a simple, powerful Christian confession. You find it elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is King in heaven on high.
And he's ruling on David's throne, Father David's throne. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through Peter's explanation. I think we all know that Jesus sits at God's right hand, his Father's right hand, on a throne. We saw that recently in Lord's Day 19. But did you also realize or see how Peter calls this throne in heaven? He calls it David's throne. Look at verse 30. He says, David, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that's David's descendants on David's throne, and then a few verses later, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So, Peter, inspired by the Spirit, brings two things together. This Jesus, son of David, is seated on David's throne which God identifies as the throne in heaven at His right hand. Peter is echoing here what the angel had said to Mary when he announced her forthcoming pregnancy in Luke's gospel. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give, listen to it, will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That took place on Pentecost Day, or actually 10 days earlier at the ascension of Christ. Do you see, beloved, the continuation of this, this grand old story, this gospel story? Jesus, an Israelite, offspring of David, is now seated on David's throne in heaven today. And he's ruling over the house of Jacob. Guess what? You're the house of Jacob. You are Israel right now. The church of Jew and Gentile today is Israel. Israel that's been renewed and expanded. The church of the Old Covenant was almost entirely Jews, although there always were a few Gentiles mixed in, but it was primarily Jews. But the church of the New Covenant, it, it blows the doors open. That was God's plan. It expands beyond the Jews to Gentiles like you and like me. We read that this morning in Ephesians 2. Jesus Christ ripped down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and He made out of the two one. So, we're Israel, Gentiles are made part of Israel. This is the new element in God's saving work, but it's not a break with the past. It's a continuation with the past. Since Pentecost Day, Israel, the church, has consisted of both the remnant of Israel saved by grace along with a number of the Gentiles added in by grace. But the end result, brothers and sisters, is Israel we are. The church is Israel. I point this out because some Christians are waiting for Christ to return from heaven, and they believe that Christ will take His seat on David's throne in the city of Jerusalem 
over there in Palestine. And that, day, that Jesus will reign for a literal 1,000 years before coming to the final judgment of all things. They, they call this premillennialism. But the Scriptures don't teach that. The Scriptures teach, starting here in Acts 2, that Jesus is king now, as of His ascension, ruling on high, and He's already on David's throne today. Just like the tabernacle and the temple were earlier types of God's dwelling place, they were earthly types of what was happening above, so David's throne in Jerusalem and David's rule over Israel was a type of God's throne in heaven and God's rule over His people from heaven. So when the Son of David ascended to heaven and took His seat at His Father's right hand, that was the, the real deal. The throne in Jerusalem was, was just a, a type of what was the re reality above. Jesus is on that real throne exercising supreme authority over everything. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are living right now today under the millennial reign of Jesus. The, the thousand years that is mentioned just a single time in Revelation, that is a symbolic figure for the totality of Christ's reign. He's going to reign for a period of time, a thousand years, until he brings to conclusion the great plan of God. Then he's going to hand the throne back to his father. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15. And when King Jesus does come back, that will be judgment day. A day of destruction for his enemies, but a day of wonder, a day of joy for all of God's people. Isn't this a wonderful, marvelous story? It's God's one ancient story, one invincible plan to bring salvation to His one flock gathered from Jew and Gentile under the reign of His one King, the great Son of David, Jesus Christ. Now just think, if God could plan all that out, in detail, from before eternity, or before the beginning of the, of, of the earth, in eternity, and, and if God could bring it all to pass, all those details, right up to this very moment in time, is there any possible way that the end of the story isn't going to follow? Of course not. Your God reigns supreme. And He's given all the power and authority to King Jesus. So rejoice and give thanks and live out your part of the story with full comfort and conviction. Amen.